This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today we have a special guest with us, Amanda Blackwood. Amanda was a victim of human trafficking who found a purpose in life to help people affected by trauma. She has spoken on multitudes of stages, been interviewed by the Chicago Tribune, and sold her artwork internationally. And I'm Mary Elkins. Amanda has been a keynote speaker at international summits, talked on multiple radio programs, and published over a dozen books. She has two podcasts, one that focuses on interviewing other authors of trauma, and the other that discusses the long-term consequences of trauma and how to fight back for a better life. We want to hear her story. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you, Mary and Kathy. It is so lovely to be here with you today. Great to have you. you. Tell us about your backstory and how you came from that to realize your life's purpose. So my backstory starts when I was approximately four years old. I was not trafficked at that age, but I was molested at that age. And I grew up in this really abusive household. So my father was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally manipulative and abusive. And my brother was the one who molested me when I was four. So that was all of my entire family at the time. And when you grow up in a household like this, you start to learn patterned behaviors. You learn that certain things are expected of you. And I was treated as a sex symbol at such an early age that later on when I got molested by other people, when I was 12, 13, 15, 16, I was raped at 17 by somebody I thought was my best friend. You've already learned at this point, since it started so young, that you don't make a fuss about it. You know, if it's happening, and as my mother used to tell me, if it keeps happening to the same person over and over, there's a common denominator and it's your own fault. So I was led to believe that everything that was happening to me was my own fault because I had made bad decisions. Wow. And even if I did make bad decisions, nobody is asking for any of that, period. Just get that out there right away. The first time I was trafficked, I was dating a man who was more than twice my age. He basically loaned me out as a party favor to his best friend for a birthday party weekend in Las Vegas. Oh. At the time, I was living in Arizona. We jumped on a plane, and this buddy of his held on to my ID for air travel because he said he didn't want me to lose my ID. I was 18 years old, and I had been running away since I was 15. I knew how to keep track of my own stuff, but they still use this as an excuse to be able to control me. Once we got to the hotel in Las Vegas, there were people who were paid off to make sure that they didn't ask questions about who I was and why I was there. Uh, I was allowed to order room service only once per day. 
and they had to bring it up to the door and leave before I was allowed to open the door to retrieve it. You were a prisoner. Was, yes, basically. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to leave the hotel room because if I did, I didn't have my own key to get back into the room and he still had my driver's license. So if I decided to leave the room and try to go get help, even though I had already been conditioned through all of my previous events not to do something like that, if I had left to go get help, I would have been without any identification of any kind. I wouldn't have been able to prove who I was. I didn't know anybody out there. I would have ended up homeless in Las Vegas. And to me, that was more frightening than sticking around through the 52 hours of what I had to endure with repeated rapes and assaults between his gambling and my food. Did they cut off your phone? Well, this was 1998. Yeah, so you didn't I didn't have, have one. Yeah. yeah. That, that technology just wasn't as prevalent then as it is now. Mm-hmm. So when I got back to Arizona, of course, I did everything I could to just get out of there as fast as possible. And I floated around for a while, just constantly on the run, found my way down to to Arkansas and then eventually Florida. And in Florida, the plan was that I was going to stay with my dad's mother for a little while until I got knee surgery because I had injured myself pretty badly on a job uh, working in a horse farm. And when I got all the way down to the Daytona Beach bus station, I called my grandmother to come and pick me up from the bus station so that I could come back and stay with her and get the uh, surgery scheduled and, and, you know, start taking care of myself. Sure, her husband, my dad's stepfather, answered the phone. And rather than saying, hey, great, we'll come and get you, they said, we are not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck. And I hung up. Wow. I had $5 in my pocket at the time. I had nobody else in the state of Florida. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to get a hold of anybody. And I was pretty much abandoned at the Daytona Beach bus station with nothing. And it took a long time. But years later, I discovered that the reason this happened was because my parents had reached out to them and told them, we know she's on her way to you. And if you take her in, we'll never speak to you again. That was the only reason my grandmother did this. She was on a lot of medication at the time. And she was Mm. uh, very susceptible to uh, influence. And they influenced her with threats. So a young couple came and found me sitting on the side of the, the curb. I was 19. This was 1999. I was just crying my eyes out as anybody would in that kind of a situation. And this young couple, a 22-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl, offered to take me in. They said they had a place for me to stay. And they would take care of me and allow me to stay there until I could get on my feet. But what they really meant was they were going to allow me to stay there until they could find the highest bidder. Because that's what happened. So this young couple sold me to a young man by the name of Esteban. I was locked up for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no uh, bathroom facilities of any kind. And back in the 80s and 90s, there was this fabulous TV show on that Richard Dean Anderson was the star of called MacGyver. I absolutely love the show. I never missed an episode. And in that dark space, I thought to myself, what would MacGyver do? He could fix anything with a rubber band and a paper clip, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I did. You have a rubber band and a paper clip. 
I didn't, but I had other tools. And the most helpful tool that I had was my brain. Mm -hmm. And I thought my way out of the situation that I was in. I won't go into too many details because it's quite the adventure. Um, I did write about that in one of my books called Detailed Pieces of a Shattered Dream. But when I got out, I was homeless and I did everything I could to float around and pick up jobs wherever I could. And at one point I was working 24 hours a day. So I would work as a telephone operator, 411 directory assistance from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. From 4.30 p.m. till 10.30 p.m., I was working at Sears. When I got off work at Sears, I would borrow somebody's car and deliver pizzas until 2 a.m. Huh. When I was done at 2 a.m. with delivering pizzas, then I would be an overnight nanny keeping an eye on a two-year-old little boy while his father was at work. I really was working 24 hours a day, and I was able to sleep while I was taking care of the kiddo. I did mm -hmm. everything to try to get on my feet. Eventually, I worked my way into actually having a place to stay by, you know, being this overnight nanny for this kiddo. And when they left, they took me with them. We got, they had decided they were going to move to Colorado. And we got about to Ohio when they dumped me off on the side of the road. Oh, are you I'd kidding? I didn't know the first anybody. people you thought you could actually trust. Right. right. And they certainly trusted you to be with their and, son. Yeah. And you had already been working in their home and, you know, sleeping next to their child. Yeah. Yep. That's I, really weird. Ugh. I will never understand exactly what happened in that situation. I believe that the, the kid's father was a single dad. And I believe that his mother, who lived in Colorado at the time, was convinced that I would have been very bad for her son and that I was only after him to marry me or whatever, when really the only reason I wanted him in my life was to get me out of Florida. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. So I, I floated around again. I was homeless, did everything I could to just kind of try to keep my head above water. Uh, bounced from one boyfriend to the next, trying to just survive, just basic survivor skills. These are the survivor skills that were taught to me at four years old and again at 12 and 13 and 15. I learned how to use what I had before somebody tried to take it away from me anyway. Mm -hmm. Eventually, mm -hmm. I made my way out to California, where my greatest ambition was to be an office manager or a personal assistant to somebody very important. I didn't care mm -hmm. who. I wanted to be connected to somebody important, and I thought that was the only way that was ever going to happen, but I would be so good at it. I had learned, a, um, at the time I didn't realize it was a trauma response, but I had learned a very valuable trauma response called hypervigilance, and I could predict what somebody was going to need or want. I could anticipate their needs in such a way that it would have made me a phenomenal personal assistant. Well, instead, mm -hmm. I was on Alias and Will and Grace, and I modeled for Harley Davidson, and I kind of fell into this world of L.A., of Hollywood, and I got to do all these really incredible things, and I had this wild adventure out there. But in the middle of doing all of that, I was still very lonely. And in 2004 is when internet dating started becoming really a very popular thing. Mm -hmm. And I met a man online who lived out of the country. But he was a real man, and he was a police officer in Scotland. He was a total sweetheart. He had a little girl 
who I think she was about two years old at the time, just a little bitty thing. And I got to know him. We used to use Skype all the time. So he would be eating breakfast as I would be eating dinner. And we would share a meal together every day. Um. And we just, we just loved each other dearly. And over a period of seven years, we had decided early on that since he was so far away and we both had our separate lives and where we were, that we were only ever going to be pen pals. But over seven years, he came to visit me and I went to go visit him. And in 2011, we decided that we were in love and I got a fiance visa to move to Scotland to go and be with this man forever. I could not wait. The moment he asked me to get a fiance visa, I'm thinking I'm going to get married to this to this man who's handsome and smart and funny and he lives in the land of kings and castles and this was what every little girl dreamed of every little girl that grew up watching disney movies right Mm -hmm. and it took him seven years to get me there and it took him seven days to start trafficking me i was 31 years old oh Hmm. i thought i had my happy ending but you were trapped again i was in a foreign country. Yep. And just like what happened when I was in Arizona, I had my passport taken away from me, my debit card, my credit card, all of the stuff. I was told it was for safekeeping. He was going to put all of this stuff in a safe. And the first week was was beautiful. It was a great adventure. I We would walk down to the park near his home and I would sit on the, the ruins of Roman baths built in 149 A.D., I mean, this place was steeped in gorgeous history. Mm -hmm. But after that first week, I stopped being able to see it. I was banned and forbidden from going to that park anymore. Um, I did have a phone that he gave me. It was an old flip phone, but he monitored everything that I did on it. He could keep track of where I was with it. So my freedoms were very limited, what little freedom I had. Well, how did you get out of that? There were a couple of different times I tried to get out. One of them, I had conned him when he had had a lot of drink w- drinks one night. Um, I conned him into giving me back my passport and my driver's license and everything and told him that the reason I needed this was so that I could go to the bank and go pull out off my money so that I could give it to him and we could put it in the bank account because otherwise it would just sit there forever. We'd never use it. And he went for it. He gave me my identification back. And the next morning, rather than going and getting the money out of the bank, I jumped on the computer and immediately bought the first ticket home that I could afford. It was five days away. So I had to wait the full five days and continue going through this abuse uh, while I was waiting for this flight. But I couldn't afford the first one because it was something like $12,000 for an emergency flight out. So all I, yeah, all I could afford was something that was in like a $2,000 range. When I bought the ticket, all I had left in my account was somewhere around the neighborhood of $11. I spent everything I had trying to get out of there. Look, I can afford this one. I'm going for it. I don't care if I don't have anything to eat on the other side. I won't going to get there and then I'm going to be okay. The abuse had continued during the five days that I was waiting for the flight, though. And I ended up with a kidney infection that was so severe that I ended up in the hospital when the flight took off. And it was a non-refundable flight, so I lost everything. Oh, God. At one point, I tried to uh, commit suicide as a way out. I was going to commit suicide by train. When A train? I had Yikes. done... An- yeah, I had done enough research to understand that there wouldn't be much left for a burial. 
but I didn't care. And it didn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. You would, wouldn't feel it. It would just be boom. Right. Right. Ugh. I had done the research to know this. Um, and it, as frightening as that was, I didn't care if there was anything left of me because I felt like there already wasn't anyway. Is this mm-hmm. the kind of reaction that most people who were trafficked have? And can you tell us a little bit about the popular myths about human trafficking? So the a lot of survivors, a lot of victims of trafficking, what they experience and what they're feeling during their trafficking is very similar to what I explained with my mother when I was a kid growing up. I wasn't being abused. I made poor decisions. Mm. It was my yeah. fault. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. And yeah. that's very, very common. When I was in Scotland, I had a complete change of everything in my head and heart. I had done enough research in psychology of my own at that point that I understood that what had happened to me was not my fault. And I was fighting back against this actively, not wanting to participate. And because of that, I had to endure torture, literal torture with sleep deprivation, food um, starvation, uh, waterboarding. Oh, waterboarding. That's amazing. <laughs> My yeah, goodness. actually stick your head under water and keep you there until you were choking or. Uh. Um, it usually would happen out on the back porch where I was laid down across the back steps at a very steep angle and water was poured down over top of my face. To this day, I have a really difficult time with water splashing in my face. I can't take showers. I have to take a bath. Um, I, I can't yeah. go to a public pool if there's kids in the water because one of them might splash me. Yeah, Very severe PTSD when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yeah. So what are the most popular forms of human trafficking in the USA and elsewhere in the world then? Well, what we typically talk about here in the U.S. is sex trafficking. That only makes up about 14% of trafficking worldwide. The mm-hmm. biggest population of trafficking we're seeing around the world is labor trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, in oh, Africa, yeah. it takes the form of child soldiers. Here in the U.S., it's migrant farmers, it's nail salon employees, it's hair salon employees, those kinds of people. When they come into the U.S. illegally and they pay somebody to smuggle them into the country, which is separate from human trafficking, by the way, um, when they when that happens, a lot of times they incur a debt bondage and they're told that they have to pay back this debt to be able to gain their freedom, except they never actually are able to pay off this debt because no matter what, there's their traffickers or their their owners typically tell them, you know, you're 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 still this amount away. And it just it does get smaller, but then something will happen and they'll find an excuse to make that debt go back up again. So one of the biggest myths about human trafficking is what it is. A lot Mm -hmm. of times people don't understand what the division lines are. So the the definition of human trafficking, according to the Department of Homeland Security, is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts from another person. Mm -hmm. If you notice, there's no mention of moving a person from one place to another. That is human smuggling. It is a separate issue. And there's also no mention of money. So human trafficking does not equal prostitution, and prostitution does not equal human trafficking. There's a but in some cases, it sounds like it equals kidnapping. Very rarely. 
Only about 15% of all victims of human trafficking are victims of kidnapping. Most people are trafficked, are trafficked by people who have a sense of authority over their lives, people who they say they love them, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, boyfriends and girlfriends. You know, my, my situations are far more common than a kidnapping scenario ever would be. And that's because traffickers want to use the mental process to break somebody down rather than having a physical altercation with them. If you if you kidnap somebody off of the streets, they are going to fight. You don't know them. They don't know you. If you get into somebody's life and you get them to trust you and you can emotionally manipulate them, it might take a little bit longer, but it is so much easier. Uh, well, what, what about people who come here for asylum from other countries and end up being trafficked for labor or sex? That is a huge overlap in the area of human smuggling and trafficking. Um, when people come here for asylum, typically they are taken care of um, with different uh, government government funded programs. It's the people who are coming over without claiming asylum or without having the proper documentation. Those are the ones that are going to be more susceptible to being trafficked because now they're in hiding. They're vulnerable. They need people that they can trust because there's nobody out there who they feel like they can trust. These are the people that are getting trafficked typically. Ah, Well, I have to ask you, because this is such a traumatic uh, life that you've had, how long does it take for a traumatic for a trauma survivor to have actually a normal life, or is it possible at all? I asked that exact same question the day I found out that what I'd been through was even called human trafficking at all. Mm. I was at a conference in 2018, and I had just heard the definition of human trafficking, and I started to realize that what I had been through three different times fit that definition. And it shocked me. And that was my question. When they opened up the panel of five speakers on the stage to questions, I raised my hand and they brought the microphone over to me. And I tried to get those words out. But what came out instead was, I'm a survivor and I need help. And it was the first time I had ever said those words. And I did still ask the question. And the way they answered it is the way that I'm going to answer it now and for the rest of my life. Trauma affects every single person differently. You can be the same person going through different traumas and it's still going to affect you differently. And the recovery process is going to be different also. You have to be willing to take those steps to achieve the beginning process of recovery yourself. You cannot expect to go and talk to a therapist once a month for a couple of years and expect a therapist to be able to wave a magic wand and say, okay, you're all better. You have to do the work yourself. If you're not willing to do the work, then you're not going to achieve that success of being able to have a normal life afterward. And to some degree, my life will never be normal. You know, the whole waterboarding thing, I still can't take showers. I can't have water splashed in my face. That's not exactly normal, but my life is pretty close to normal now. It's a beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful life that I live. That's good. But how can people get involved with the fight against human trafficking? I would say definitely vet organizations that you're looking at getting involved with. Look for reputable organizations. There are some that will take the stories of survivors and use their stories to be able to gain 
uh, more money and more donations for their cause while not giving back to the survivor who loaned out their story in the first place. This is another form of exploitation. They are victimizing the victims. So look for organizations that you know are doing the hard work that are actually going out and either offering counseling services or legal services or housing situations for people that have experienced trafficking and are looking for that possibility of having a normal life afterward. Um, In Colorado Springs, there's an organization called Compass 31 that's phenomenal. It is survivor run. There's another one up here in Denver called Beautiful Feet Wellness. She teaches yoga and has um, actual health retreats for survivors of trafficking. And then there's an organization called Alight. A light paired me up with legal services pro bono to be able to help fight back when in 2019 I found out that the man who had trafficked me in Scotland had put up all these different photos and videos of me on a pornography website and made me famous. Oh, yikes. Well, what about the anti-trafficking organizations that people shouldn't work with? Are there plenty of those out there? There are. If you and find how can you distinguish those? If you find that there's an organization that is gaining fame and notoriety, you have to ask why. If they are having movies made about them, if they are um, getting worldwide recognition, look at where the money is going. If you track it down and you find out the CEO of this organization used to work for the military and he's worked, living in a $6 million mansion, you guarantee he did not make that $6 million mansion money working for the military. You have to know who's running the organizations and you've got to know where the money is going. There's plenty that are completely open about their spending habits. Compass 31 has a seal of recognition for doing exactly that. And there's many, many organizations that people are dumping their money into and throwing their money at that don't have this. What helped you to heal from your trauma? When in 2019, when the the pornography thing happened... I went into a tailspin. One of the organizations that I was familiar with out here immediately put me with the pro bono legal services. Another organization paired me up with a therapist. It was the combination of finding the ability to fight back and having that support to be able to fight back against this, but also the therapy to help me get through understanding why certain things continued to happen uh, and and kind of digging deep into the psychology behind it and getting the therapy that I needed and starting to retrain my brain. Mm-hmm. Now, all these trauma reactions that we have, we are reinforcing bad behaviors every time we allow this trauma reaction to exist unchecked. Now, if mm-hmm. we start to pay attention to the what we're doing when we do get triggered by a, an event that reminds us of a traumatic past. We have to stop and recognize, I am safe. I am not in danger right now. This person did not mean this the way that I'm taking it. Stop, take a deep breath, think about it, and come up with a healthier way to respond. We can start to retrain ourselves in this way to fight back against these trauma reactions. Is it possible uh, to have a healthy relationship after surviving this type of human trafficking and trauma? Absolutely. So my autobiography was published on my 10-year anniversary of freedom from trafficking. It came out in 2021 on June 19th. 
And one month later was when I met the man that is now my husband. Oh. He is the most amazing, patient, loving, loyal, incredible human being I've ever met in my life. And he's told me many times now that I'm the only person on the planet that's ever accused him of being patient, but he really is. <laughs> and he read my full autobiography before we ever got engaged, and he knew everything that had happened to me and everything that I'd been through. And one of the things that he said to me was that if I could live through everything that I had been through and still come at the other side, willing to love and have a relationship, that he needed to have a lot more of that in his life. Mm -hmm. And I've always loved that about him. And just, he's, he's just amazing. <laughs> and oh. your relationship with yourself too must have improved greatly. Oh, absolutely. One of the greatest things that I found throughout the healing process is the gift of being able to write. When you're able to write in detail about things that have happened, you're able to take that then and say, okay, here it exists. It is separate from me. I can set this down and walk away from it now. And you literally leave it behind you when you go on. That's great. And what is one thing you wish you could tell someone who is going through now what you went through? We often hear the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I disagree with that. We already have the strength within us or else we wouldn't still be living now. The man who coined the phrase, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. His name was Frederick Nietzsche. He died in the 1800s in an insane asylum. I think we can let go of that one now. We really do have the strength within us. Fight back, find your way. And if you don't know what your resources are, it's the same thing as not having those resources. Find the resources available to you and get out. You, you are really come out of this a real winner. So how do you celebrate these wins? My favorite is with a pint of Chunky Monkey. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big yeah. ice cream fan. I'm trying to kind of curb that a little bit. Uh, but another way that I love to celebrate is to just go and spend some time with my husband. Maybe we'll go out to dinner or I'll cook an extra special meal. My most recent book was actually a cookbook called Surviving oh. in the Kitchen. And when I discover a new <laughs> recipe that I want to try, um, he's my guinea pig. He was willing to try anything. And there's been very few times that he's been like, yeah, this isn't great. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite recipe? My favorite one in that book is my chicken Pierre, which is a stewed tomato uh, spicy chicken dish. I usually serve it with a rosemary garlic mashed potato and a prosciutto wrapped asparagus. It's just mm, one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, that sounds lovely. How many books have you actually published at this point? The book number 13 came out on June 1st. Wow. And it sounds like they're across the board. You've got, a, you've got your autobiography. You've got a cookbook. What else do you have? I have three books in a sci-fi series. I ah. have a historical fiction that's based on my grandmother's life as a wing walker in the 1930s and 40s. And Ooh. her first love. It includes a real-life murder mystery from my family. Um, I've mm. got several other what I call microbiographies where they tell little snippets of things I didn't go into a lot of detail in with my autobiography. And I've got a book of poetry and I have one book that is all the funny stuff that happened my first year on the job as a flight attendant. Oh, oh. my goodness. This is very diversified writing. 
Yeah, <laughs> yes. very much. I haven't heard of that before. Uh, and tell us what's one thing you love about yourself that's not based on physical appearance. My tenacity. The oh. only reason I'm still alive is because I refused to give up. I fought hard and some days were really difficult, but it was never as difficult as it would have been to give up. Mm -hmm. mm. Love that. Well, yeah. on another note, sort of, tell our listeners about the free ebook you offer on your website. Yes. So my ebook is actually called Detailed Pieces of a Shattered Dream. And that is actually the story of Florida, which is why I didn't want to go into a whole lot of details about that. Um, the story of Florida, it talks about all the different uh, the different avenues I tried to take to be able to get out of that small room, how I ended up there in the first place. It goes through all of that. And it it ends with telling people that, you know, a happy story, a happy ending depends on where you stop telling the story. In that book, I don't talk about after I got out of there, I ended up homeless or what happened in Scotland. It ends with a happy ending because I just got out. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that theory. That's really good. <laughs> and what would you like our listeners to have today as their main takeaway? To know that while sometimes it feels really overwhelming to think that we can't change the world, we have to recognize that we can absolutely change the whole world for one person. Mm. If I had one person back then ask me, are you okay? Things might have been different, but nobody asked because nobody cared. Nobody wanted, to, wanted my problems to be their problems. It mm. could have made all the difference in the world. I make it a point every single day now to reach out to at least one of my friends that I haven't heard from in a while and say, hey, how are you? Are you okay? And I'm always surprised at the answer. Oh, so reach and, out and you can change the world. Yeah. That's One person message. at a time. Good message. That's, yeah, beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Amanda Blackwood. You can go to her website, growthfromdarkness.com, where you'll, you will be guided not only to the Growth From Darkness podcast, which is now syndicated in the radio, on the radio in Australia, but also the Growth From Darkness book series, the calendar of public speaking events, and you can sign up for the mentorship program to take control of your own trauma story. Thank you, Amanda. That was powerful. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. We would love to remind our listeners to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and go to our YouTube channel, Late Boomers Podcast, to watch it there. Please follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at Late Boomers. You can drop us a line at our website, lateboomers.biz. We are grateful to our listeners and we always strive to enlighten, inspire, and entertain you. Thanks again, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. 
please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.